One of the great things about hosting a podcast about books that features a new episode every week is that in the beginning of each season, I don't know where my reading journey will take me, but I'm game for the mystery. Joining Book of the Month is kind of the same thing. You know you're heading into new territory, and it's going to be an adventure. Book of the Month is a subscription that helps readers discover new books and helps writers by promoting emerging authors alongside established ones. Here's how it works. Each month, Book of the Month members get to choose from a curated selection of new and early release books. Your pick gets shipped right to your door, and shipping is always free. There's so much excitement knowing that one of your picks just might be that next book to make it into your top 10 most favorite books ever list. And if you like to listen to your books, there are options for you. Book of the Month just launched a curated audiobook option, and you can listen to your selection directly in the app. Here's what's in store for March. Annie Bott by Sierra Greer. Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez, plus several other titles. I chose the memoir Hereafter by Amy Lynn because I'm interested in how people deal with grief and bring their insights to the page. For a limited time, you can get your first book of the month for just $9.99 using the code CHIRP. You can sign up at bookofthemonth.com. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Garth Greenwell, author of the novel, What Belongs to You. The book tells the story of an unnamed male narrator who is living and teaching in Sofia, Bulgaria. The narrative focuses on the narrator's relationship with a male hustler named Mitko he meets in a bathroom. Their connection is fraught with violence, lust, and ambiguity. We began the interview discussing the nature of transactional sex and what that means in the novel. Yeah, so, you know, that was one of the things I really wanted to explore in the book. I wanted to write about sex work in a way that recognizes how complicated and fluid and often ambiguous sex work is, especially in a gay context. And, you know, I think it's really hard to say anything that's adequately complicated about sex work. But I do think that sex work between men is structurally different from sex work in a heterosexual context for one reason, because the roles are so fluid. I mean, it's, you know, it's the case that you know, many, many, many gay men have been on both sides of that transaction in various ways. And also, I think it is often ambiguous in the ways that you talk about, like transactional sex between Mitko and the narrator. You know, it's often the, the first scene where the narrator actually gives him money in exchange for a sex act is, I think, the only time that happens where, you know, there is this sort of clear... I will do this for X amount of money, or I will let you do this for X amount of money. I think that's the only time that happens in the whole book. And actually, you know, transactional sex, and I think this is true in the world, is very often much more kind of casual and fluid. And it might involve, you know, a ride somewhere, a place to sleep for a night, or, 
you know, or something even more ambiguous than that, so that it's not even clear to what extent what's happening between these people kind of is a transaction and to what extent it's something messier and more complicated. When they first got together, the narrator says that he's going from one category of erotic object to another. Can you talk about this line? Yeah. So, I mean, right. So that that happens in the context of their first meeting. And the, the, the two men, they meet in a public toilet beneath Sophia's National Palace of Culture. And this is a real place. It's a very famous gay cruising place where men go for sex. And, you know, when Mitko first makes clear that he might be available to the narrator in exchange for money, the narrator immediately says no, just as a reflex. And he tells us that, you know, he, he often gets these kinds of proposals or propositions in the places that he goes. I mean, he's someone who has spent a lot of time in cruising places and that he's always said no but he realizes that, you know, that's not because he disapproves of, of sex work in some way. It's because of pride and because, you know, he's always felt like I don't need to pay for sex. But he's getting older. You know, he's not, you know, he's not old in any way. Um, I don't think we ever actually know what his age is. But we do know that he grew up, um, that like he was a young teenager in Kentucky in the early 90s. So, you know, that puts him somewhere in his early 30s when the book begins. So he's not an old guy. But he is aware that, um, you know, he has a sense, I think, of time passing. And he has a sense, you know, there is, I think, a sense in him that that of kind of missed opportunity. And he, he says that at one point, that he lives a life of sort of missed chances. And so, yeah, I think that, you know, part of what, you know, makes him available to this relationship with Mitko is that, you know, he has a sense of himself as, you know, not being as desirable as, as he once was. Like there's a scene where he sees Mitko talking with his clients. Mitko is in his apartment and Mitko is talking with his clients on Skype and, and he just sees these older men, men who are older than he is, these older men who are just this sort of spotlit face on the screen, like all you can see of them is their face. And he thinks, you know, how have I become one of these men in the dark? And he's, you know, part of the experience that the book is written from is his realization that, you know, he is he is becoming a kind of an, an older man, which is a kind of different category, you know, for, for gay men, that he's losing the appeal of youth. So you mentioned that the National Palace of Culture is a big gay cruising spot, which is interesting to me. I'd I'd like to know more about that location. But I'm also just sort of curious about the human architecture of cruising spots. I mean, what is just tell me more about what they're like and what men encounter there and why maybe that might be interesting for you. So, right. I mean, cruising has been central to my life since I was 14. I mean, as a gay kid in Kentucky in the early 90s, um, I mean, cruising with these cruising places, and especially this park in Louisville called Cherokee Park, um, which was a big cruising place when I was a kid. um, That was where I came into my identity as a gay man. And it was where, you know, I first experienced queerness as not just a source of shame, but a source of joy. And 
one of the things I want to do as a writer, because I've written about cruising before, I'm I'm writing about cruising in, in my next projects. Um, you know, I want to write about these places in a way that recognizes their richness and recognizes the fact that, you know, they enable communities and sustain lives. And, you know, they've they're places that have been really denigrated you know, both by straight culture and by a certain strain of gay culture, you know, which is really kind of the marriage equality strain of gay culture. And um, I support marriage equality. I think it's essential that we have that right. But I also think it shouldn't become the only model we can imagine for for queer life. You know, the the bathroom in Sofia, which, as I say, is a real place, and which I found by accident, um, you know, one day wandering the city, um, and I, I and a friend, a straight friend, um, a colleague of mine at my school, we just needed a place to go to the bathroom and we happened to be passing beneath. So in, in Bulgaria, you know, there are these big avenues and to cross them, you go underground through these um, little sort of underground passageways that are called podlesi. And there are these podlesi that pass between the avenues on either side of the National Palace of Culture. And, you know, there are places they have shops, they have restaurants they have different things so it's kind of like a little you know like subterranean mall but and we just saw a sign for the for the bathroom and so we were already underground and then uh, to get to the bathroom you have to go much further underground I mean it's a very striking thing you really descend far and somehow and I don't know I don't know what tipped me off um, but as we started descending the stairs, there wasn't anyone to see, there weren't any noises, there wasn't anything, but I turned to my friend and I said, men are having sex here. And I was right. And it was the most bizarre experience because, you know, this was just the first few weeks that I had been in Sofia. I barely spoke survival Bulgarian. I, you know, Everything above ground kind of baffled me. The social mores are so different. I was constantly making faux pas and, you know, giving signals I wasn't intending. And then I descended into this space where I was absolutely fluent because the codes of cruising were exactly the same as the codes in Cherokee Park when I was 14. And that experience of sort of, you know, not just familiarity, but, but almost something like homecoming in this very foreign place was what gave rise to the novel. And it was the experience I had again and again in this place as I talked to gay people, as I talked to gay men whom I met in places like Indica or online. Indica is um, the the Bulgarian name for the National Palace of Culture. So I, you know, in conversations that I had with men I met at Indica or um, with men I met online and in conversations with my students because I was the only openly gay you know, person in my school community. And for almost all my students, I was the only openly gay person they had ever met. And that meant that gay students came to talk to me. And as they talked to me about their lives, and as they gave me a sense of, you know, what they imagined as the possibilities for their lives, for all the differences of their stories, I felt like they were telling me my story. And it was that connection, that weird way in which I felt like queer people in Kentucky in the early 90s and queer people in Bulgaria today are taught the same lessons about their lives, have the same kind of horizon of possibility drawn across their life. I mean, that was what really made this novel happen. The publishing industry is a system. Books are mirrors in people's experiences. And in season two of Missing Pages, 
We'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial. She was in pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't worldproof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest is Garth Greenwell, author of the novel, What Belongs to You. Our interview was done on Skype. So one of the things uh, that you do in the book is Mitko, I believe, is the only character that has a name. Yeah. Everyone else is, the narrator is never named. He refers to his siblings as sister and brother, mother and father, and then the significant other relationships in his life, he just uses the first initial. That's right. Tell me about that choice. The narrator not being named kind of does have a, a narrative explanation in the book, which is that when he first talks to Mitko in these bathrooms, he tells Mitko his name, and Mitko can't pronounce it. His name has sounds that Bulgarian doesn't have. And that felt right to me. It felt right to me. I mean, it felt sort of ritualistic that the narrator descends into this space and then he's stripped of his name. I mean, there's something initiatory about that. And there's something also emblematic of what I think is going to happen to him in his relationship with Mitko, which is, one, he's stripped of his language. And this is a narrator who is really attached to language. We know he's a poet and, you know, he likes a certain kind of sentence. And I think he associates a certain use of English and a certain mastery of English with dignity. And this is a narrator who feels a lot of shame. And that language becomes a kind of defense for him. And with Mikko, who doesn't speak English at all, he has to speak Bulgarian, which especially at the beginning of the book, he does very inexpertly. And I think that that kind of strips him of defenses in a way that allows the relationship with Mitko, you know, to, ch- to challenge him in kind of fundamental ways and to challenge some of the defenses he's built around himself. Um, so that's why the narrator is not named. That just seemed right to me. The reason that Mitko is the only named character, I mean, one thing was I want Mitko to be the most vivid presence in the book. And one thing that I became aware of as I wrote the book is that you know this is a very interior book everything happens in the narrator's consciousness but if mitko is not available to the reader as someone to sympathize with and to invest empathy in as his own person independent of his role you know in causing the narrator to have thoughts and feelings then i think the book has failed i mean i i wanted mitko to kind of leap off the page i wanted to describe mitko physically and to describe his you know physical reactions to things especially when they're having sex and one reason the book has explicit sex in it is that i wanted you know to describe the movement of mitko's body in space in a way that might give the reader some evidence some information 
you know, maybe allows some hint of access to Mitko's experience. So it was important for me in some way to find, to, to make Mitko a kind of independently cherishable character. You know, a, a name gives, it's, it's, you know, it's like a container for investment. I mean, a name, I hope, allows the reader to invest in that way. It's like a spotlight. And a spotlight is also a position of, of vulnerability and of exposure. And that felt right for the position that Mitko occupies both in the narrator's life and in the society more, more broadly. As the narrative continues and we get into the story, it turns out that the narrator has contacted an STD from Mitko. In a way, he wants to be chastised by this disease. Right. And I'm just wondering, is is an STD, I mean, obviously it's not the worst thing, but why was this something that you wanted to happen to your narrator? And can you talk about w- writing about it? Yeah. So, right. I mean, there is this this very, very old association of you know, sexuality and especially of queer sexuality or non-normative sexuality with disease um, and also of, of that sexuality as disease. You know, the narrator talks about the fact that, you know, when he was a kid, and this was very true for me, you know, the only story he ever heard about men like him was that if you were gay and you had sex, you got AIDS. You know, so the narrator really internalized this idea that if he had sex, he would get sick. Syphilis as opposed to HIV, the big difference is that there's a cure for syphilis. In some ways, it highlights the difference of of privilege between the narrator and Mitko. Because, you know, they're the access they have to treatment. And then, I mean, because, you know, privilege is something that is bodily too, that has, you know, long-term effects on the body. I mean, the, the consequences for Mitko, even though this is a treatable disease or a curable disease, the consequences for Mitko are going to be different from the consequences for the narrator. The whole, there's a whole section in your novel where the young narrator is sort of realizing his identity in Kentucky and, um, has an experience with a friend he refers to as Kay, and his father is is more than dismissive of him. I mean, eventually he kicks him out of the house. And so the reader comes to understand his past, which is generally important for any human individual to understand the past to go to the present. But he also has a chunk of the book with his mother, it's him as an right. adult. So right. I think it's interesting that you chose to have this section with the father and the mother. And can you just talk about those? The the second section of the novel, you know, which was by far the most difficult section to write. It was very painful to return to the geography of my childhood. And, and you know, and I've talked in other interviews about um, about how that is the section of the novel that cuts closest to the bone. And it was only slowly that I came to realize that, you know, it was trying to explore how this narrator became who he is. And this person who is so clearly desperate for intimacy and yet so intensely withholding of himself and kind of engineers a life that that prevents that intimacy. And so I wanted to look at, at you know, 
when did he learn these lessons about himself? And so, you know, that middle section explores these two, you know, important relationships he has as a child and teenager that, you know, kind of give him a, a vision of what he is. And those are this relationship with his father um, and the father's rejection. And also, you know, this friendship he has with Kay, who you know, becomes, you know, the first boy he loves. It felt important to explore those memories on the narrator's part, but kind of more profoundly, like what causes the narrator to be so limited in himself and to be so unavailable and ambivalent and unable to kind of, you know, commit himself to anything in his life, really, or to any place. I mean, he lives this very sort of migrant life. So that all felt important. And then the scene with the mother, um, you know, that was one of the, the the last pieces of the book that I conceived and wrote. And I remember the relief I felt when I when I wrote it, because I knew that the, the third section of the book was incomplete, that it lacked something, and yet it, it, it didn't lack something in the narrative you know, or in the, 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 the relationship between Mitko and, and the narrator. But it lacked a kind of, you know, I almost thought of it in musical terms. It was like there was a chord progression and it lacked one of the harmonies. And, um, you know, it there's a pattern in the book of the narrator looking at children with their parents and thinking about that relationship between, you know, our first sense of home and of belonging You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest is Garth Greenwell, author of the novel, What Belongs to You. Our interview was done on Skype. Can you share a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you? Yeah, I thought I I would read one of my favorite moments in literature, which is the very ending of Virginia Woolf's brilliant, tiny essay, the death of the moth, um, you know, which is like five paragraphs. I mean, it is, it's a five paragraph essay, but not the kind any of us wrote in high school. Um, and it's, uh, you know, just thinking about observation and observation as sympathy. I mean, all this is, is a writer trying to write something in, in her room and being distracted by a moth dying in the window. And so it ends like this. Also, when there was nobody to care or to know this gigantic effort on the part of an insignificant little moth against a power of such magnitude to retain what no one else valued or desired to keep moved one strangely. Again, somehow, one saw life, a pure bead. I lifted the pencil again, useless though I knew it to be. But even as I did so, the unmistakable tokens of death showed themselves. The body relaxed and instantly grew stiff. The struggle was over. The insignificant little creature now knew death. As I looked at the dead moth, this minute wayside triumph of so great a force over so mean an antagonist filled me with wonder. Just as life had been strange a few moments before, so death was now as strange. The moth, having righted himself, now lay most decently and uncomplainingly 
composed. Oh yes, he seemed to say, death is stronger than I am. So I think this is just an extraordinary passage that kind of has in it, um, you know, all the secrets of literature. I mean, the way in which it takes something, and this is, you know, Virginia Woolf's great genius. I mean, it takes something utterly insignificant, utterly quotidian, something all of us have seen, and it turns it into a kind of staging ground for the largest possible questions and meditations about life. And, you know, talking about observation and trying to put thinking onto the page and trying to put urgency on the page without, you know, any of the machinations of plot or drama. Um, I just think it's extraordinary. And it, you know, to me is kind of endlessly, you know, endlessly inspiring. Can you read a passage from something you wrote that was either tricky to write or something that turned out really different from the first draft or just something that you like? Yeah, I'll read. It's just a couple of sentences that are, to me, really important. And I, I worked on them very hard. I worked on them very hard myself. And then I worked on them very hard with my um, editor. To me, their sentences, the reason they were so hard is that they're trying to get at you know, the dynamic of this relationship and how complicated it is. This is the first time the narrator, after meeting Mitko several times in the bathrooms at, at the National Palace of Culture, this is the first time that the narrator has invited Mitko into his house, into his apartment. And it turns out that it will be one of the only times, I think there are only two nights that Mitko and the narrator spend together. And so this is one of them. Mikko turned to me and kissed me, deeply and searchingly and possessingly, at the same time pushing me backward down the hallway toward the bedroom, pushing me and perhaps also using me for support to the broad bed where we had lain together earlier and where now we laid down again. He wrapped his arms around me and pulled me close to him. And not just his arms, he wrapped his legs around me too, and with all four of his limbs pressed me to him, embracing me so that when I breathed in, the air was filtered through him, smelling of alcohol, of course, but also of his own scent that elicited such an animal response from me that so fired me up, I imagined the chambers of the brain lighting up thrown switches in a house. He lay like some marine creature wrapped around me, wrapping around me again if I shifted or half woke, and I slept as I have seldom slept, deeply and almost without disturbance, held like his beloved or his child, or held, I suppose it must be said, like his captive or his prey. Do you want to say anything else about that? I mean, what was so hard, you know, those last, really just, you know, that last sentence that's sort of full of images and that's trying to... Um, you know, express the the ambivalence of this relationship and ambivalence in, in the real sense of that word, which means equally weighted. And to try to, you know, say in one sentence everything this relationship is or could be. And the fact that, you know, they never escape predation. And yet also they never foreclose a depth of feeling. Um, that is, I think, 
you know, deeply human and full of promise between them. And so, you know, finding the images, finding the shape, because it's not it's not just what the sentence says. It's also the shape of the sentence that has to express that ambivalence. And, you know, I just worked and, and reworked this for weeks. And then again with my editor, trying to clear it out and to keep, you know, just the essential and to have, you know, the weight of it feel kind of perfectly balanced. It was maybe the hardest sentence in the whole book. Where do you write? I, you know, I write in many different places. I'll say where I wrote this book um, because I had a very stable writing routine as I wrote this book. And I wrote it in Bulgaria in the early morning hours before school. I would wake up at 4.30 in the morning and I would write um, from 4.30 until 6.30. And I wrote usually in this chair in my kitchen by the window and I would look out, you know, I was in this neighborhood of these old Soviet, um, you know, housing blocks, these sort of behemoth concrete prefabricated structures. And, you know, I would start writing in the dark and then I would kind of know that my writing session was over when it got light. And, you know, I got used to I sort of memorized the pattern in which the windows across the street would light up and you know, who would be the first out on their balcony to smoke their first cigarette of the day. Um, so that was, you know, I mean, this book really was written in those, um, in that chair. And it, you know, when I think about writing this book, I have a very intense memory of place. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I don't really have an answer to that question. Um, I write, and I, I think longingly on this right now, because as I I'm touring for the book. You know, I'm not writing at all and I can't have a writing routine, but I write in in a very kind of structured way so that, you know, I always write at the same time. I mean, not always true. Sometimes I might, you know, if I feel like writing later in the day, I will, but um but you know, I always have these blocks of time where I know I'm going to be writing and it's not I never think about escaping from it because I I feel such longing for those blocks of time. Yeah. And then and then when those blocks or blocks of time are over, I, you know, I have other I allow sort of other obligations to claim me. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? So my best friend and one of the people to whom my book is dedicated is a musician. I met him in, in music school, the Eastman School of Music, and um, he's a conductor. His name is Alan Pearson. And he's the first person I show anything I write to. And he's also the one person whose opinion I can't dismiss. He's always right. How have you dealt with rejection? Rejection has been the story of my life. You know, I've been writing for 20 years. And until two months ago, you know, I was pretty much entirely invisible. And one of the lessons of publishing a book is that, you know, even after the world says one big yes, it still keeps saying no again and again and again. I mean, rejection, I don't think ever disappears from an artist's life. It is painful, you know, every time. And the only thing you can do, and this is something that's so helpful about having a very disciplined writing schedule, is that the only thing you can do is, you know, go back to your notebook and trust that those hours you spend writing are going to, are going to get you through the feelings of, pain and of failure and humiliation, which I think is the experience of being a writer, being an exp- even when 
even when you're having moments of success, I think the experience, you know, the experience of being a writer is one of failure and humiliation. And what is your favorite word? So my favorite word is a Bulgarian word, and it's the word nenagleden, which is an adjective. And you apply it, it doesn't have an English equivalent, but um, it's an adjective for something so beautiful you can never get tired of looking at it. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Garth Greenwell, author of the novel What Belongs to You. We recorded our interview via Skype. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.